Hey you, thanks for tuning into the Waiting List Podcast. I'm Long Long. I'm Daniel. And I'm Jacqueline. And we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches. So sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors, industry giants, and share some good vibes. Hi everyone, welcome back to this week's episode of the Waiting List Podcast. Um, I'm here with Daniel and Long Long as always as well as one very special guest who's um, very kindly taking out time from his busy schedule to be with us today. Um, someone who needs very little introduction in the watch community. We welcome Paul Boutros, head of Watches Americas for Phillips Auction House in association with Box and Rousseau. Welcome to the waiting list, Paul. Thank you very much, Jacqueline. Uh, an honor to be here amongst uh, you all. I, I really do appreciate you you having me. No, it's it's a pleasure on on our side. Um, on the waiting list, you know, we we self dub ourselves a brazen bunch. Um, we might not be the most knowledgeable at times when it comes to industry news or or watch knowledge, but you know, we do try to discuss our most genuine thoughts and one of those genuine thoughts we we keep and we try to maintain throughout the podcast is you know sharing enchanting stories we hear from our guests and um last week you know we had lunch and then you shared with me a very personal and enchanting story of how you started um getting interested in watches with your father um, so I want to kind of start off with that, with that personal story. And so could you tell us a little bit about your background, your life before watches, and ultimately how you got interested and started collecting? Uh, thank you, Jacqueline. Um, probably some people have heard this story before, so I do apologize <laughs> if it's repetitive. Um, but um, yes, yeah, so watches have a very deep personal uh, meaning for me. Um, it all started at the age of 10, really. Uh, uh, my father was a collector of many different things. He collected coins, he collected stamps, he collected pens. And I got the collecting bug gene from him. Uh, at that time, as a child, I was collecting baseball cards and got really into coins alongside my dad. We went to a major coin show in New York City uh, back in 1986. This is when I was 10 years old. Um, and after the coin show, it's the holiday season in New York in December, and we're walking on Fifth Avenue. And he wanted to show me how the shops are dressed up. The windows have uh, holiday themes. And as we're walking on Fifth Avenue, we pass by a watch boutique. It's Wempe. And it's on the opposite side back then of where it is today, of Fifth. And we go into uh, like a little area before you can enter into the store with, with showcases that you see these timepieces on display. And he liked watches, but he was not a collector at all. So he had an appreciation for them. And he was looking at uh, the timepieces on display. And so was I. And I was absolutely fascinated by an entirely new world that was before me. I see these tiny objects with very high prices. $10,000, $20,000, for a, a watch? What is all this? And uh, this retail experience is what changed my life, literally. So uh, a lovely sales lady, she sees the enthusiasm uh, of these potential <laughs> patrons. And she says, gentlemen, why don't you come inside? I'll be happy to show you uh, these watches up close. So I grab my dad by the arm. I'm like, dad, we have to go inside. She sits us down and playing on my excitement, she asks me, young man, what watch would you like to see? And I pointed out an IWC pocket watch, which I would later learn was a caliber 5500, uh, reference 5500, uh, and a full calendar with moon phase, about 50 millimeters or 60 millimeters even, now 50, 55 millimeters in diameter. She brings it over, it has a half hunter case. She opens up the case back and under the halogen lights in this warm inviting atmosphere, I see the gilt bridges gleaming. The jewels, the red jewels, rubies gleaming at me and a ticking large balance wheel, which was the heartbeat of this watch. And it was absolutely love at first sight. The price was $23,000 at the time. I absolutely remember its, its price. 
And from that moment, I had to learn as much as I possibly could about watches. Uh, so go home and my dad would bring home Wall Street Journal newspapers, New York Times newspapers, and I'd look for ads for watches. And back then there's no internet, of course. And um, I'd call the numbers for Audemars Piguet, for IWC, for Patek Philippe. Hello, can you please send me a catalog <laughs> to, to learn more and get more information? And my dad was sort of, it was infectious. So he too kind of wanted to learn more. And before you know it, coins take a backseat, baseball cards take a backseat. And we go to flea markets, we go to auctions now looking for watches. And one thing I should mention, my father came from a different country. I'm born and raised in the United States. He came from Egypt, um, as did my mom. So they're very conservative. Uh, he had me later in life. He was 42 when, when I was born. And so we had a cultural gap and a generational gap. So he wanted me to be a conservative, very, you know, um, non-American, let's say. And of course, I want to be an American kid and stay out late and watch movies. And he was not for that. So we would fight a lot. Uh, and this continued throughout my teenage years. Of course, it's even worse when you're a teenager. But what brought us together uh, were watches. So we were hunting for watches until I was 17 years old. I go to college. Uh, I should mention at the age of 10, discovered watches. And at the age of 10, I knew I wanted to be an electrical engineer. So I was always fascinated by small things and how they could either be valuable or how they work. So I loved walkie-talkies. I loved remote control cars. I loved cell phones later on. And how all these things worked just fascinated me, especially mechanical watches. So my life had two paths. So age 17, I get into college, engineering school, and watches take a back seat because engineering school is pretty intense in college life. You want to have fun. So the hobbies sort of go, go by the wayside. Um, get my first job. I go to graduate school. Uh, at the age of 26, I graduate. No, yeah, I was about 26. I, I finished grad school. One month later, my father passes away. This is 2002. And I visit the safe deposit box where the collection we had built together was stored. And I open up the safe deposit box and I'm overwhelmed with emotion and realizing that these timepieces, these were the source of my happiest memories with my dad. And now I have no graduate school, I have extra time. All my extra time now is focused on writing about watches, sharing what I love to the rest of the world. So I start posting uh, pictures and, and, and uh, posts on timezone.com, on the purists, uh, just sharing my joy uh, for, for watches. And, um, you know, I, I start posting a lot and then opportunities start to knock uh, where you know, Timezone asked me to be the moderator of the Audemars Piguet for uh, initially. Uh, they asked me to cover a event with Richard Meal. And I was a photographer basically for this event. And it was just so much fun. I started a watch club called the Watch Enthusiasts of New York, like the Shanghai Watch Gang. Uh, this was founded in 2005 with, with a community of collectors in the New York City area. Um, I become the watch columnist for Barron's Magazine just because, you know, you have a voice and you're not just repeating, you're, you're speaking from the heart. And, and I think readers, readers enjoy that. Uh, then I become a consultant as uh, a brand reached out to me to help them design a timepiece collection. And it was a, a wonderful experience. And I realized, hey, there might be something here. Uh, and then more opportunities started to knock. And then uh, the ultimate opportunity came when, when Oral Box was, was starting Philips. Uh, this was 2014. I'm still uh, an engineer now into uh, business development and uh, product development at Lockheed Martin. I had a 16-year career at the time. Uh, a very intense job. I was designing ballistic missile defense systems, sort of a, a rocket scientist, believe it or not. And um, always had this passion for watches, though, in, in the background. And uh, when Aurel described what he wanted Philips to be, 
uh, you know, a just different type of auction house focused on quality first and foremost, selling less watches, uh, watches that we would personally buy ourselves, dedicated to quality, dedicated to transparency, dedicated to scholarship. And he wanted me as a collector, never have been, I, I've never been a dealer, I've always been a collector. And he wanted that mindset. And he said, Paul, I know you're an engineer, you like to build things. So here's your opportunity, start from a clean sheet of paper. Uh, he, he, I flew to Geneva to meet the, the potential team. We all got along very well. Uh, within two or three weeks, it was a top secret meeting because this was, um, you know, behind the scenes, nobody knew this was, was coming. Uh, you know, he had quit Christie's about a year earlier. And uh, I have a top, I had a top secret clearance working at Lockheed Martin. But the secretive nature of this trip <laughs> was very reminiscent of my work. And I, would, I shared some of this experience with my colleagues at Lockheed, and they were absolutely intrigued <laughs> too by the secretive nature of this meeting and clandestine trying to hide from, from our competitors. It was, it was very interesting. But within two or three weeks, um, I had an offer in hand and I quit my day job with the blessing of my wife. And uh, September 2014 uh, is when I started. I was a consultant at first. And um, yeah, it's been the best decision I've ever made. Uh, it, was, it was a very risky one. I was, I was 38 years old. Uh, I, of course, I had a good career. I had a mortgage. I had two kids at the time. But I was inspired by my dad, who at the age of 37, left his comfortable country in Egypt to come to the United States with really nothing in his pocket and no network to give a better life for his children. He, he was of a minority religion um, in, in, in this country where, you know, opportunities are limited if you're not of the mainstream religion. And, uh, you know, his courage inspired me. And I said, it's now or never. I can do this. And I had much less risk as Lockheed Martin told me, hey, you're not going to a competitor. You're changing careers. And if anything doesn't work out, you're always welcome back. Um, but they also said, Paul, it's about time. <laughs> we knew this was coming. Good, best of luck to you. We, we really hope you succeed. And, and uh, yeah, that's, that's how I ended up at, at Phillips. That's such an amazing story. Well, I think we can end the podcast right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So when you shared it with me, oh, by the way, yeah. So to all those listening, this is the story that Stephen was talking about when we interviewed him. Um, when when we asked, you know, what is it about New York and the community there and the people there that makes you miss New York? And that's mm -hmm. when your name came up. And then and then he he shared the brief version of that story. And now um, thank you for for that. Our audience, you know, now hear the full story. Um, but exactly. when you when you shared it with me over lunch, um, and then you subsequently said, you know, it's such a personal and um, dear thing to your heart. And then you told me that you had your daughter working at the preview, um, which I, I didn't know. And I, I thought that was such a lovely surprise. And what a perfect way to demonstrate just just how much you value this um I don't even want to say a career because I mean it is, but but this this love of yours uh, with your family. Um, so yeah, I, I have a, in the background here the two pictures up above. Those are cutouts from a book called Movement uh, by a photographer named Guido Mocafico. So I purchased this book uh, back uh, when my daughter was about four years old. She's now eighteen. Um, so I had just received the book from. Um, and I, I think it was Amazon who, who shipped it. So I'm so excited about this book because it's a photographer who took pictures of movements in various states of assembly. And it's very dramatic against the black background and really gorgeous. And it's, you know, kind of table, table, uh, coffee table sized. Um, so I get the book, I start going through the pages and my daughter's four and she comes and she sits on my lap and she says, daddy, what you looking at? And I said, I just got this book. It's about watches. You wanna, you wanna, wanna learn? She's like, yes. So I turned the pages, and she's like, what's that? I'm like, that's a jewel. What's this? That's a bridge. That's a uh, a balance wheel. 
And every night she said, Daddy, can we look at the watch book together? So believe it or not, within a few days, she learned all the parts of a watch movement, learned different finishing techniques. <laughs> and, and she learned how a watch works and she would meet people in the watch community telling them, you know, but she knew, especially when we went to watch events when there were watchmakers there. And they were in disbelief that this young little girl was was able to tell them about <laughs> watches. And of course, I was a proud papa. Um, but um, yeah, we um, it, it is, you know, watches are so personal and your relationship with them. It, it is so individual and, you know, it's it's a lifelong journey if you want it to be. Uh, and, and I get great the greatest pleasure from them when. Uh, sharing them with family and close friends who who are not familiar with with watches and just I love opening people's eyes to their greatness. You know, these are small objects with a whole world behind them. And the the more you scratch the surface, the more intrigued you are, and the more you you know forget about life's problems. And and um, it just it's a ha totally happy place. And and I want people to experience exactly that happiness that I get from them. Yeah, I have a question, um, which is, you said that before you joined Philips, you're a collector of watches. This was your hobby. You know, you really loved it. You did some consultancy work, um, but obviously at an auction house, it is about also, you know, selling watches um, to to buyers. You know, that, that position is somewhat changed when you go into like a, an auction house, like that mindset. Like, how did you find that change from, okay, I'm a collector and then actually adjusting to working with it within the auction house? You know, because I'm a collector and because buyers are collectors, I speak their language. And, and you know, I, I, I'm not, we're not about the quick buck, you know, pushing sales to make our quarterly, uh, whatever quotas. We're about developing a long-term relationship and helping people get the watches that they love so that they can be happy for years with the watches they buy. And when I meet clients and I get to know them, I have in mind watches that they may like. So we don't push, we suggest. And you know, it's it's they're, they're, they come to us in hopes of finding the right watch for them. And here we are trying to curate a selection of watches we believe will have an audience, uh, you know, obviously it's bad business to curate watches that don't have buyers. So we look for great watches that we personally would buy, but also we have no hesitation recommending to to clients around the world. And um, yeah, I I actually love it. I, I love when there's genuine passion from the client who's not looking for a speculative bet. Hey, what's the what's the quickest way I can make a dollar? Uh, with which, which watch should I buy to make a fast buck? No, I, I love the clients who say, you know, I've been searching for this big red Daytona that's unpolished, you know, from my birth year. And I've been looking for such a long time. Whenever you find one, Paul, please let me know. And this is so exciting, you know, because personally, and, and you all are collectors, there's so much fun in the hunt. And then when I'm hunting on behalf of others, it's even, you know, it's great. <laughs> yeah. you know i'm still a collector i'm still hunting for my own watches um but i i love doing it for others and i was doing all this before i joined phillips for free for friends you know for the collectors i i knew it's just so much fun mm. um i have two questions actually so the first one is i kind of want to know okay let me rephrase that i want to know what you were wearing when you were working at lockheed <laughs> yeah, so uh, <laughs> I'll tell you a story. <laughs> this is this is one of the first watches I bought, you know, in my career after my dad died. Um, I was intrigued by vintage watches because that's what we were collecting. And I'm hunting now uh, one 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 afternoon. And I see a Rolex Sea Dweller, and I look at it. It's a double red Sea Dweller, which was kind of a popular model back at the time. And I liked them because it was Rolex's toughest watch. 
And I appreciated that. And it's a Submariner, it's a sport watch, it's, it's cool. So it was, it was posted on, at a dealer's website and I click on the pictures and there's a photo of the case back. And the case back says patent pending. And I'm an engineer. I know what patent pending means. It's a prototype. It's, it's not yet patented. Whereas the vast majority of seed dwellers will have a patented Rolex patented case back. So I said, hmm, this is unusual. And I look at the dial, it has different details compared to the vast majority of other double red sea dwellers you see online. And the price is the same as a normal double red sea dweller. Without hesitation, I bought it. Um, I didn't pay much, it was under $10,000. And I was so excited <laughs> that I, I discovered something that wasn't known. Nobody knew back then what a patent pending seed, patent pending seed dweller, very few people knew. And uh, sure enough, it was a, a Mark I uh, double red dial uh, with the same font size for the word Submariner 2000 and Sea Dweller. Uh, produced, you know, for in 1967, and there were models with examples with serial numbers from 1971, but about 200 examples probably believed to have been produced. And that in excitement of understanding those little details got me really hooked. And the purchase of that watch, because I had a good relationship with the person who sold it to me, a month later, she presented another special Rolex Submariner. This time it was a military uh, sub, uh, mm -hmm. a full spec mil sub. Again, about $10,000. This is before watches were very, very, uh, very sought after. And, you know, it has different hands. It has uh, full, fully calibrated 60-minute bezel, fixed spring bars, and issue marks plus the insert T on the dial. Sold. <laughs> I bought it because it was different. And, um, yeah, this set me off on the course of, you know, hunting for what people didn't, we, we may not, may miss. Mm -hmm. So one of the earliest watches I was wearing at Lockheed was that Sea Dweller. Um, and it was a conversation piece with the engineers I was working with. And I'll tell you what, when you have somebody on a team who's crazy about something, and especially engineers, they have the right mindset and mentality, you become sort of an infectious virus. <laughs> the engineers around me were like, Paul, oh, I'm interested in watches. Help me buy one. That's and cool. sure enough, any, any team that I would go on, the enthusiasm would spread. And uh, it was so much fun sharing with them these details. And uh, to this day, I have friends at Lockheed who collect watches now and we stay in touch and, and I help them find their, their next watch and, and all. But um, yeah, so sorry, that was a long answer. No, no, that, that's cool. That's really cool. Um, my second question um, is not related, but I read about, I read this article that you, where they interviewed you and you said, these are some of my favorite watches. And you had mentioned there was a Rainbow Daytona. There was a Paul Newman. And then I kind of thought, oh, okay. So these are watches that I would consider some of my favorite as well. And I always think to myself, hmm, it seems like people who like the same kind of watches, like there's a set that they like. And then you meet someone else and there's another set they like. Do you see this like with like meeting so many clients like they have a specific type and then it's this whole set like type a b c d e and they like the same watches and then another set of people will be like you know one two three four five another set yeah um it's a great question um the sensibilities certain clients have are shared amongst clients so mm -hmm. I have probably a handful of clients who always like the same watches within each sale and they always end up competing with one another. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, it's the nature of the market. So, you yeah. know, the, whoever, whoever has the, the fortitude to, to win the lot will win. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it's interesting how people's sensibilities are sort of fixed typically, but as they get more experience, as they speak to more collectors, as they speak to, to us, we do try to help open their aperture a bit. Mm -hmm. And, and we say, Hey, because you like this, you may be interested in this. Mm -hmm. 
and and that's a lot of fun and and that's why collecting is a journey and and i mean me personally i thought i liked this kind of watch segment uh these types of watches mm -hmm. i joined phillips and i meet the international team of specialists especially uh the geneva team and their tastes and sensibilities shaped mine and mm -hmm. i got you know, I appreciate things I never imagined I'd appreciate, like gem set sports watches. Mm. <laughs> never imagined I'd love them. And and sure enough, I, I appreciate what they represent and the quality behind them. Um, so, yeah, it's um, it's great to approach collecting with an open mind and, and to, to listen to others, but to follow your heart. Mm. You know, there are things that, that that's the number one thing is just follow your own road. Uh, take inputs from from others to just keep yourself educated, um, but then just focus on what really sings to you and what you love today. You'll probably still love tomorrow, but you'll be surprised at what else you'll love also in the future. Um, great. So quickly switching gears, um, I want to talk about auction a little bit. Um, so first of all, I'm curious to those who you know, might not know about the auction uh, process or to those who might feel a little bit intimidated about auction in general. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how Philips um, curate a sale? Yeah, it's a, it's a mix of us reaching out to uh, watch owners. Uh, it's a mix of watch owners reaching out to us. Uh, it's a mix of specialists around the international team giving us uh, and New York watches that they can take because they may have a conflict. Uh, so there's um, an influx of timepieces from all of those various sources. Then it's up to us to be judicious in what we select that makes it into the auction. So we want the auction to be an event. We want to offer things that aren't easily found. Uh, we want to offer great quality timepieces so that, you know, whenever you just choose a random lot, flip through the catalog, just choose a random page, it's going to be a good watch. And, and it's one that we wholeheartedly, rec wholeheartedly recommend. We don't want rubbish. We don't want regrets. Uh, it serves numerous purposes. For example, if you focus on quality, well-preserved watch watches, the, the odds are it's going to be reliable it's going to be working that you don't have to spend a lot of time servicing it before it can be uh, ready to be sold because we, we, we sell watches that, that work. Um, so yeah, we, we, we want quality. We want exclusivity. Um, we want um, watches. We know people will uh, want around the world, you know, this competition, that's the benefit of auction is if you have something very desirable that you know more than one person wants, you can, should consider auction to let them compete for it and, and ensure you get fair market price. So, so that's one of the reasons why people choose auction is they, don't, they may not know the true market price and um, putting it into an international auction house with a large reach helps them ensure they're getting the right price for their coveted, coveted item. Yeah, so it's it's quality, it's um, just curated. We want let you know for my, my philosophy for for the New York team is less is more. So we do have the smallest sales across the, the three selling locations for auction, uh, and I'm proud of that. Uh, we 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 want every watch to shine in its own way, and when there's less watches included, they really do shine. Um, and and believe it or not, we reject ninety percent of the watches proposed to us. Um, I've said this before and people kind of say, oh, that's BS. Well, imagine somebody offers you a collection of watches. There's 200 collection, 200 watches in that collection and you choose two because, you know, they're, they're low value and they're not interesting. This happens much more than people realize. And so we, we are judicious in, in what we accept. And we explain this to those consigners who approach us with these watches and they get it. And how would you typically explain to a consigner, say, someone who comes to you with 10 watches and you end up taking one or two of them and not the rest of the eight? Um, how would that conversation go about? Yeah. And, and, I, and I would say, hey, thank you very much for considering Philips for the sale of your watches. 
Um, you have a lovely collection. Out of this collection, there are two we believe will do well at auction. The remaining eight, uh, we don't believe we'll have sufficient buyers for it. And we don't want to disappoint you with the results. Uh, so with that, uh, we're happy to accept these two uh, watches in particular. Mm -hmm. um, and then I want to talk a little bit about estimate making. Um, uh, so actually, quick story. Um, during my last semester of college, I took a class um, and it's called um, Prediction X, Omens, Oracles and Prophecies. And it's taught by a team of astrophysics. Uh, scientists, um, engineers, and and of all that sort, and and historians, and we interview psychologists and people of different field where we talk about how humans fundamentally and 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 biologically are intrigued about our futures, about about making guesses and and bets. So we study, you know, Mesopotamian uh, sheep on trail reading to palm reading, to, to um, Japanese tea reading. And for the final project, um, you are supposed to come up with your own study of a predictive system. And being me, um, I, I did it on watches and, and specifically for watch auction, how estimates are predicted and the accuracies of such prediction. Um, so, and I did a lot of research, but you know, I never had the opportunity to to ask uh, auction people because I kind of thought it would be cheating a little bit. And then you're supposed to, you know, cite um, uh, scholarly sources. So all I did was read auction reports and market reports. So now that I finally have the opportunity to ask uh, someone like you. And so so my question is, like, how are estimates formed and are they different for different markets um, on similar references? Uh, yes. So I mean, across Phillips, we're pretty consistent, whether it's Hong Kong, Geneva, or New York, in how we estimate. We opt for a conservative estimation approach, which is not loved by consigners, to be honest. <laughs> they view those estimates as risky. Um, so in general, we like to start the bidding, meaning the low estimate, at approximately 50%, ideally, of the market value. So if uh, a watch has a retail price or a market value of about 100000 we hope to take the watch in with an estimate of 50000 to 100000 This is what we recommend to consigners. Of course, they're, if they're not familiar with us, they say, what? Well, I paid 95000 Why would I risk, or I paid 80000 why would I risk it selling for as low as $50,000? Uh, when, when you see a published estimate range, that means the watch could sell for as low as the low estimate. It could even sell for lower, um, but anything published within the, any, any hammer price within the estimate range, leg, you're legally bound to sell it. So... Yeah, it's scary for them, but you want to excite bidders around the world and cast as wide a net as possible for bidding. If you don't have the excitement, if you don't have the bidders stepping up, uh, then the the auction of the lot is a dud. It doesn't it doesn't do well. So imagine we start the bidding at ninety. So so the watch has a retail value of one hundred thousand. We start the bidding at 90,000. We publish an estimate range of 90,000 to 180,000. When you add in the buyer's premium, it brings you to about 115 when you when it's all in. And you know, why would I want to pay, you know, if, if the minimum bid gets me above the retail price, I'm not even going to step up to bidding because it's too expensive. So, this is it's psychology. You want people excited about the lot. And you know, for consigners, we explain to them, you know, just consider the model, the desirability, consider the market, if it's the market still appreciates the model, and consider the auction house. Does the auction house have the client base to deliver proper results? So, yeah, we 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 are very open and transparent. We like clients to have eyes wide open on what could happen. 
anything can happen at auction. A watch could fly and it could not. Uh, this is what brings people back uh, because it's it's fun. You never know what you're going to get. Um, so we we uh, we try to to just explain that you know we believe that this watch will do somewhere in this range despite the estimate, and that could give them confidence. Uh, or otherwise, we say, hey, this is the estimate range. We don't believe it's going to get you the price that you hope to get. And we recommend waiting or not not auctioning. Uh, so we, we definitely like to speak to the consigners, see what their expectations are. We give them a recommendation based on our experience. We've been doing this for a long time. Um, we sort of understand what our buyers like to see and what estimates work well to deliver higher results. You know, it's counterintuitive, but a lower estimate range um, normally, in general, leads to a higher result. And that counterintuitive um, uh, thought is it's it's not known by many. But but mm -hmm. for us, experience in the auction house, uh, that has been a formula for success for us. And and what would you say is deemed as a successful estimate um, result uh, wise when it hammers within the estimate range or oh. when it exceeds? For sure, the the higher the, the hammer price, the more successful we feel we we were. Um, we we do like to see prices higher than what the market expects. Um, that is always a good feeling that, that our auctions delivered added value, um, and the competitive process delivered added value. And in in any auction, you'll have some that results that exceed the market price, some that are at the market price, and some that are below the the market price. Uh, it's just, you know, the, the, the way it is. Uh, and, and if a collector consigns a collection of watches in one sale, they'll see that some <laughs> overachieved, some achieved and some some disappointed. But usually the aggregate, they will have done very well and are happy that they consigned the full collection uh, with us at auction. Yep. I've got a question just going back a little bit, which is you mentioned that the uh, auction is very curated with like some of the rarest and you know, desirable pieces but you know you're someone that well i'm as well but we see the pieces more often because you work at auction but which are the pieces that really have left a memory in your mind as wow you know maybe i won't see that piece for a while that's really special you mm -hmm. know which one of the which ones are they I mean, I, I've had the very good fortune of having sold some of the most valuable and, and important timepieces, you know, in the past couple, couple past past decade or so. I mean, um, you know, the, the one that absolutely stands out at the top is Paul Newman's Paul Newman. Um, you know, having grown up as a, a collector in the 1980s, you know, I saw the dawn of the 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 uh, popularity of, of the Daytona going from the ugly redheaded stepchild of uh, Rolex <laughs> to, to um, you know, the most sought after uh, model today. And one of the reasons for that was the association of Paul Newman to the, uh, those vintage models. Uh, and of course the introduction of the self-winding Daytona in 1988, but those two uh, things helped push the entire world of wristwatch collecting to a level, you know, never before imagined. And uh, the Paul Newman Daytona was mythical and, and every collector, you know, a lot of collectors dreamed to own one. And here we had V1 uh, that, that was thought to have been lost or, you know, just, um, yeah, it was just an incredible thing. Uh, another one was Roger Smith's number two pocket watch that we just sold. Uh, just what an incredible piece that is, uh, just unique in its own right. And, um, you know, it achieved $4.9 million, the highest price ever for any British timepiece. Uh, for a young living watchmaker, it's an incredible result. But when you just look at what that watch represents, it is everything that is that man today. Uh, without that pocket watch, there would be no Roger Smith brand today. There would be no high-end British watchmaking today. Uh, he, he said it himself. If George had rejected that watch, he would have been finished with watchmaking. Uh, and it's one of only two surviving pocket watches uh, that he made. Uh, the third one, the first one, um, 
the case of the first lives on in number two. He melted down the case of number one to create the case of number two, just because the cost of gold was high and he was a young watchmaker, didn't have the funds. Uh, but the movement remains in, in one of his drawers in his workshop. Uh, and he made a third pocket watch for uh, a client uh, after having ma made the number two that, that took him five years uh, to make. And um, just uh, everything about that timepiece, just it, the story behind it is is everything I love about watches. I mean, it's human uh, I was, uh, how was Roger at the auction? Obviously, I saw you in action. Uh, Jacqueline and me were on the phone like not at auction on the phone, like literally on the phone. Like, what are you watching this? Are you watching this? Cause you went in, you went in before Aurel even started the lot. Right. <laughs> and we were just laughing on the phone. Um, but it must've been quite emotional for Roger. Right. Yeah. So he was in the room, uh, in the first or second row and seated, seated next to him was, uh, the underbidder. And oh. yeah. <laughs> and the un underbidder really wanted it. Um, uh, the, the, the excitement on his face and the disbelief in his eyes as the, as the bid price, uh, kept going up, it was a sight to see. Of course, I was distracted doing the bidding, but I was noticing the underbidder and next to him was Roger. Um, what, what, what I was told afterwards is that Roger, right after the sale went to the back uh, of our, uh, auction room and he started to cry. Um, it was it was um, very emotional for him that, that the world appreciated this timepiece and paid you know this this particular collector paid such a high price to have have this piece of of his history this piece of watchmaking history um, you know this is the, the the best of of watches full stop I guess it's some kind of like um, redemption you know when he looks back at the five years he spent making that watch, you know, knowing as like you say that this was his last shot and also never foreseeing that, you know, this could end, it would be end up like this, you know, it must have been, must have some kind of like redemption feeling. Right. It, you know, it, it, it is, I mentioned perseverance just before very briefly. Um, imagine he, he spent 18 months on the first pocket watch to try to gain George's, uh, favor to become his apprentice and George rejected him. He said, no, this is not good enough. <laughs> Sorry. And he went back to the workbench and started from scratch a new watch and, for, and spent five years to create a second timepiece. And when we unveiled the watch uh, for auction in, in April in London, and I did a, 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 we did a talk with James Marks, myself and, and, and Roger to just unveil it and tell a little bit of its story. Just before the panel, I got a phone call from Michael Clarizzo, the, the author of the book, uh, Masters of, of Contemporary Watchmaking, and he wrote a, a biography of George Daniels. Um, and he said to me, Paul, before you go on your panel, I want you to, to know, know one thing that the world doesn't know, uh, but I learned from George Daniels, Michael learned from George Daniels, is that a number of watchmakers, six or seven watchmakers, had approached George Daniels also with a timepiece in hopes of getting that, that coveted uh, apprenticeship. He rejected all of them, including Roger, and only one came back with a second watch to try again, and it was Roger. Imagine this human perseverance. A door closes on you, you fail, and it doesn't stop you. You took, you took yourself to another level and you create one of the greatest timepieces of all time thanks to that failure. This really resonates with me and it's just the, the power of the human spirit. Um, so this is one of the elements of the story that I absolutely love telling. Um, wow. You can't top that. That was going to be my last question anyways. I wanted to talk about the last uh, auction at uh, New York, you know, with the pristine forest and the Roger Smith, but I feel like we covered. Oh, well, long, long. Yeah. I know that was like, I know we want, should end on high point, but I suddenly thought about something that I've always wanted to know that's like unrelated, but what happens when buyers don't pay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we hate that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we do our very best to convince them to pay. 
uh, we, we, they are in a, a, a binding contractual uh, agreement when they sign up for bidding. So we do pursue multiple options to force them to pay if they don't. Um, and uh, it, it could uh, go to a, a legal case. Uh, it, it would lead to permanent banning. Um, in any event, if it does not uh, pan out the payment, we do uh, approach under bidders. Um, but we do our best to make things right for clients and we take things on an individual uh, case basis. Uh, and the worst case is um, we would cancel the sale, return the watch to the, the owner or reoffer it in a subsequent option. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, I will say it's very rare mm -hmm. uh, that, that clients who, who win don't end up paying. But as in any business, you know, you have um, things that, that go wrong. And uh, we, we do our best to mitigate that from happening by vetting carefully who is accepted to uh, be able to bid. Mm -hmm. uh, to prevent that situation to begin with okay cool. i think for bidders like if you had been uh yearning for this this one watch that you've been searching for ages and then finally you see one pop up in auction like i would and i and you were to win it i would like pay even before the invoice is out <laughs> because you've been you know literally day and night looking for this um and and i guess that has to do with you know matching the right watch to the right client which yeah. as you mentioned is is a big part of the curation and selective process um great okay so do we have any more questions before we go into the reversal round i'm good okay yeah. reversal round paul let it uh -huh. out <laughs> okay i'm gonna start with daniel Oh, wow. Okay. You're, you're going to be in the hot seat first. <laughs> so what what new thing have you learned about uh, watches working now at Philips? And this could be what what discovery have you had? What sort of new type of watch or, or category of watch do you more appreciate um, since switching from the world of collecting uh, to uh, the auction world? Mm. Well, I think I was pretty fortunate because of Shanghai Watch Gang and then subsequently Shanghai Watch Festival and knowing a lot of collectors um, that, you know, were very generous in sharing their watches. Um, something I think at Philips is that maybe you don't quite get at other auction houses that is the independent brands. You know, you have such a wide array of independent brands and, and pieces there. Uh, and there are so many pieces that aren't necessarily for me, but I would still want to see them, you know? And that's a great thing about that what we have on on Philips. But I think what I've guess I've learned at auction houses is, is the, the amount of work behind the scenes that goes through um a sale. Because we only do like the main auction is twice a year, right? On in each location. Um, but we all help each other. Like the whole international team comes together and helps each you know, New York and Hong Kong and Geneva. And then it's all this work that you do, all this groundwork you do. And then like literally the space of like two days or maybe the week before, it's just getting released. You know, that energy is just getting released like a boom. Um, so I think it's the amount of work that goes through to make a sale, uh, like let's say a white glove sale, you know? to make sure that every lot is is sold and um yeah i just didn't appreciate like the amount of teamwork and the work that gets involved like behind the scenes yeah because you guys make it look so easy to yeah right collectors and bidders and clients yeah exactly. you curate like, you show the preview yeah 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 and then you sell but then i would yeah. also say on a different note you know one thing i've not definitely known is i need to brush up on some of my knowledge on certain areas <laughs> yeah because you're the, you, you don't get to pick clients walking in you know you don't get to say oh just well, let's just talk about this which i really like you know <laughs> they like something else and you like think crap <laughs> like that's my weak spot like right where's that catalog right now <laughs> and uh i you know it's one thing um you know i talk about the work one thing that i tell people about Borel is for me you know he's at the top of the game but man does that guy like work 
like a dog. You know, he he every sale, he he's there on almost pretty well all three sales. And just on time zone alone, that's crazy. But then the catalog comes out, the trades come out, everybody's handing them watches, and he's still making his own notes on every single piece. Ah, uh, it, it I just it's such a you know, I hate to say it, it's a bit cringy, but like a role model, like you think, okay, that's what you need to do to to get to the top, right? And I look at myself and I think, oh, wow, I'm so weak on vintage Rolex, you know, mm. like I know about the mill sub and stuff, but I couldn't say, yeah, it has all these features. It was in year, whatever, roughly estimate. But when I see people doing it, I think I wish I could do that. Right. So I guess that's something that was like a, a big wake up call. Yeah. Thanks, Daniel. That was a great uh, response. <laughs> yeah, he, he he does work very, very hard. And uh, there is so much work behind the scenes, as, as you know, uh, to get to get those results. And, uh, you know, that that's the secret of success in any job, though. It, it is hard work. Um, I'm, all of you, uh, Lung Lung, Daniel and, and Jacqueline, as you enter into your career, um there's that's the most rewarding thing is to is to work hard and and see the fruits of your your efforts pay off and, and that's the watches we love when these when these watchmakers put their hearts and soul souls into creating these pieces it is the result of hard work at the end of the day um, so so thank you thank you daniel the next one is is long long so um i admire your strong um sensibility and your individual road that you you take and and you you buy what sings to you there's one brand that that comes up a lot in in your interviews and that's audemars piguet and and yeah. audemars has a special place in my heart as, as well so i i want to know from you what is it about audemars piguet the brand that makes you uh, appreciate their watches so much I would, I would honestly love to give a really deep answer, but I think the easiest way to explain it um, is, I think of something. I mean, the way I gauge whether something is aesthetically designed well is if I show some of my girlfriends who are completely not into watches a watch, and they say, "Hey, this is nice. This is not nice," but generally. Um, Everyone has always just been like the Royal Oak, beautiful, easy to wear, looks beautiful. But the real reason I even got onto the brand was because I grew up in Singapore and we had very little choices. We had the Hourglass, we had Sincere, so we had a few ADs. Um, and I just remember very vividly the first standalone AP store, and it's still exactly in the same location, same layout. I mean, they changed a few things, but same size, the shop. Um, that was the only shop that was standalone. And it was by the taxi stand. We never had Uber at that time. So everything, everyone would line up there. And when I've, and I've always been someone that would, and I think till this day, be embarrassed to walk into a watch shop because I will never go in unless I actually thought in my head, I have the money to buy the thing today. So if they did offer it to me, I'll buy it on the spot. But I don't want to go in and sit down and have a conversation and make people like stop whatever they're working on to be like, can I offer you a drink and then talk about watches? And then for me to be like, yeah, that's all for today. And I feel really <laughs> bad. Sounds so, exactly what you would like to. Yeah. So um, I've always struggled with like walking in. And I remember, so my first watch was a J12. And when I felt like, okay, I'm ready for my first like serious watch. I was like, I'm going to this AP store. Mm. And I was really sure I had, I like prepared way more than what was, I remember my first offshore, it was a, it was 26,000. So about 20,000 USD. Um, and I was just like, okay, it could be 40,000. I just prepared the money and I was like, <laughs> okay, I'm ready. <laughs> like, I know nothing. I knew the guys were wearing bumblebees and pandas and everything. And I was like, I didn't even know anything about the sides. I was like, they must have something for girls. Went in, was really cool, like acting super cool about it. I wasn't even like, let me sit there the whole day to try. They had a navy blue one and a purple one. And I was so nervous. I was like, yeah, the purple one is super nice. Like, okay. And it kind of started off there. And then 
fast forward like 10 years later I'm living in Hong Kong and I would have thought that maybe I would have like graduated from that brand and I would have moved on and my taste would become more refined and whatever but um the first thing I was drawn to again and this is also the first time I started buying from dealers I was still drawn to Royal Oak but then at that time, I was very clear. I knew what I was buying. I was like, okay, I'm going to get into Neo Vintage. I'm going to try something different. And it was very clear what, like how I was going to start again. And from then onwards, I didn't feel like I was pushed to buy the brand. It was more like it was a deliberate choice. And then this was also the first time that I kind of learned that you could actually build a relationship with a brand and um it kind of felt like family and i'm talking about like four years ago i know there's a lot of um drama now mm-hmm. in AP, but four <laughs> years ago it really was i had like 200 followers on ig i had no photos for uh no watch photos and the fact that i just genuinely told them hey i moved here this is my story with watches and i've been shopping in these like secondhand dealers and i just want to tell you what i like and how, what my lifestyle is like and what my job is like and this is what I wear to work and I just need one watch and I was really clear about it and they allocated me something that should have never gone to me honestly no way it should have gone to me and because of this I I had no idea this is watch game so I genuinely believe this is amazing like this is like a real family and I really went okay they are people that I walk by and pop in all the time just to be like hey how was your day for no reason not even because I wanted the next watch I just truly believe there was a family there um so that brand has kind of like it kind of started my journey into like my watch collecting in Hong Kong yeah it's great. I like how you said that was four years ago. Recently, yeah, it was, and I'm not gonna lie. Like I'm very transparent about this. They're not exactly nice now to other people. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's great. Thank yeah. you, thank you, Long Long. Uh, <laughs> very interesting. Yeah. Um, so, so Jacqueline, you you are the final <laughs> person. Um, so. I uh, love your collection uh, as well. Thank you. And um, what what would you say you prefer? Complications? And if it is complications, what's your favorite complication? Or time only? Oh. Um, I think for a long time, long time, a year, year and a half, I was obsessed with complications and particularly um perpetual calendar chronos um my favorite reference of um paddock is the 3970 and then um it's the watch that i knew about before i knew anything about watches and and i've told this story before it was during the talking watches hodinky um with john mayer episode when he pulled out the 5970 and and that was when i was in junior high or or even younger and and i didn't know anything about what they were talking about but um i just remember seeing that watch and just being mesmerized by the dial and the design language um and then john said you know 15970 and um the 6263 are as good as it gets. And then Ben said, well, yeah, the 3970 and the 5970 are as good as it gets. So so my being the curious child, I, I Googled, you know, 3970, 5970. And then I realized, you know, it's basically the same watch, but different case size, same movement. Um, and because I have a smaller wrist, the 3970 always stuck with me. Um, so when I came to the U.S. for for school, I walked into a local dealer here in Boston and I asked them about the 3970 if they had one and they did. And, and, and it was a black dial 3970. Now I know is the third or fourth series. And I remember just trying it on and I was and I asked the price. They said um, 85,000. And I said, never going to happen. But thank you. Thank you for showing it to me. Um, And that was the watch that kind of always stuck with me. And this is when I had one watch. 
which is, you know, I was very lucky to be have uh, gifted that. Uh, I was a modern yacht master too. Um, and then COVID happened and then Lung and I always talk about like we we felt we weren't worthy of paddock. Um and 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 that's how I felt because it was such a big name and so much to live up to. And um but then, you know, being me, I I, I don't stop my mind doesn't really stop when it comes to watches and research. And I said, you know, okay, if I had to, if I have to commit, I have to get a 3970. And then the obsession went on, second series, first series, white metal versus yellow metal. Um, and, and that's all I chased after um, for a year and a half, which was perpetual calendar chronos. And then subsequently, the 5004. But this 5004 is a lot um, heavier and, and thicker to wear. To me, the 3970 is the perfect size, perfect everything. But, you know, now more and more, I'm leaning towards... And we were just having this conversation yesterday during our podcast. Um, what we see is so saturated on social media. And, you know, people are often very easily influenced by others. And, and it gets to a point where it's hard to find what you truly derive joy from. Like for me now, it's photography and watches. But but now I'm just content with what I have. And I'm if I wear a watch that I know is subjectively and objectively good for me i'm i'm okay and i can share that with people that i find you know who have that connection so be it complicated be it a simple time only if i like what i'm wearing and, and my mood is okay i'm feeling something more simple versus something more dressy then it makes sense for for me whereas before it it had to be so multi-layered and, and and complicated. Now everything I want is the simplest form. I, I want to derive the purest joy out of my watches. Um, so that's a long-winded answer to your yeah, to your great answer. answer. It's a great answer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, that, that shows the the breadth of your your you know your what you what your sensibility uh, ha has, you, you know, you, you, you appreciate the complications, but uh, at the same time, you have a deep love for the simple. I do. But then, you know, when I, when I, I can, I can talk to you guys about this and you would understand, but then I tell this to like my friend circle, they'd be like, what's yeah. your problem? <laughs> like, <laughs> Like, what are you even talking about? Like, you're stressing out about this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll shut up. Let's talk about your day. So, um, that's... No, but I love my friends. Okay. Um, okay, next round. Pump pusher round. Um, basically, quick ans uh, quick questions, quick answers. Are, you are we ready? Okay. Uh, first question. What would you say to someone who is interested in watches but intimidated by auction? Mm. Come to an auction preview. Good. I like that. Um, if you could have a meal with one watchmaker, who would it be? Uh, past, present, or? Uh, Red Chef, Red Chefie. Oh, nice. Nice. Um, we really want to have him on, but he's such a busy man to to schedule. <laughs> um, most meaningful piece of advice you want to give to your children? Mm, ooh. <laughs> um, work hard, follow your passion, and uh, be a good person. Mm. Um. A watch that you secretly hate, but you are scared to admit. <laughs> the Aquanaut. Oh, really? Yeah. Are you a more Nautilus person? Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you could speak another language, what would it be? French. Um, easy. Vintage or modern? Vintage. Vintage or independence? 
vintage. And last but not least, if your watches in your watch box could speak, what would they say about you? I like to marry things. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning I don't I don't let things go. I I hold on and um my my watch collection is comprised of watches I've owned for many many years. Each watch tells a story and the collection tells a story and I love that. And yeah. um So secretly when you're sleeping, they're like all whispering to each other, we're the lucky bunch. Like we got a good one. We've got one home and we're staying in this home. <laughs> Great. Uh, well, that, that concludes the end of our interview, Paul. Um, thank you so much for spending an hour with us uh, this morning. Thank and you all. That was so much fun. You, you guys are awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, No, we're, we're glad you enjoyed that. Um, and uh, for those who are listening, please, um, you know, check out Paul on Instagram at P uh, Boutros. Check out Philip's watches. If you're intimidated about auction, please go check out a preview in person and then get a sense of it that way for yourself. You can bring loved ones, friends, family, and then uh, we'll see you on the next one. Bye, guys. Bye, Bye everyone. As always, thank you for listening to the Waiting List Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to us at the Waiting List Podcast on Instagram or via our private accounts. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.